and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-acumen roundtable pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Monica Marvelous. Hey, Monica, how's it going? It's good, Mav. It's spooky season. It's spooky season. It's Halloween. It, <laughs> it's, oh, God. Can we go behind the curtain and say we're doing podcast time travel? So, like, it's only barely October for us, but I'm not sure when this airs, and so like, I am excited, though, because Halloween's my favorite holiday. You know what? I watched Hocus Pocus 2 yesterday, and so that, for me, is like we are firmly in spooky season <laughs> if holiday movies are happening that's, then okay. right then there's no yeah, podcast time travel needed we are right. in the holiday and it's oh god see i have not watched hocus pocus 2 yet we were talking about this on the group chat i've seen hocus pocus the original i think once i don't remember anything wayne said he'd never seen it and then the three of you three youngins you are all like oh this is the best movie ever it's a part of my childhood i have like almost no recollection of this and like the fact this is a film that was like nostalgic for people was kind of new to me when they announced that they were doing Hocus Pocus 2 like a couple of years ago. And so I was like, wow, this is something people were into. And you guys are like, yeah, this is formative part of my childhood. And I was like, really? So r- really? <laughs> it is a, I'm a little like irrationally annoyed that they chose for it to come out 29 years later after the original instead of 30. Like, why would you do that? Just so you think they should have waited? My perfectionist brain. I think they should have waited because that would have given them time to write a better script. Oh, so you didn't like it? No. <laughs> oh, okay. So, I don't know if we're going to have an episode on it or not, because it's getting really good reviews, and I like I have not seen it yet. I believe just a little spoiler, you didn't like it. I don't think Hannah loved it, but like the reviews are great, so I don't know. Maybe I should watch it. Maybe I should watch it and like see if I can watch it critically without nostalgia go- goggles, because I don't have any. So maybe I'll like it better than you. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, say it. Yeah, re- Comment on the episode. Like, Send us a tweet or comment on the episode and let us know if you want us to do a Hocus Pocus review if we haven't already because again podcast time travel so, so I'm not sure but anyway that's not what we're talking about today what are we talking about today I mean, we're kind of talking about that right because we're going to talk about how Halloween movies tend to have virgins in them as a <laughs> pivotal plot point we're going to talk about how you know is something a bad script or not because I had so much fun Mav when you invited me on to watch <laughs> Under, Under the, the Cherry, Cherry Moon. Moon a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and you really did convince me that it's a good movie and so I thought that we should do that premise again with another mm-hmm. movie that can be kind of polarizing and because it's spooky season I thought that Jennifer's Body would be a great movie to make everyone watch and play the is this a good movie because I think it's a good movie game and <laughs> I invited some other people on who to be fair I didn't ask them if they think it's a good movie to know if I'm going to be outnumbered or not maybe I should have okay. before I asked them to be guests <laughs> but I did ask some people who are amazing horror writers who I think are pretty qualified to give us some expert analysis on whether or not Jennifer's body is a good movie. Not just a good horror well, movie, but a good movie. But a good, you're, saying, you're not even stopping at horror. You're going like I did with Under the Cherry Moon and you're saying, bar none, this is actually just an excellent film is what you're saying. Yes, because I'm going to own my bias, which is that I actually don't like horror movies, but I, I love very much do not like them. Uh, yeah, I, like, I, I have like a handful of exceptions of really good horror movies that, that like very much run the gambit of like there's like 10 where I'm like this is an excellent film it's not just whether it's horror or not like I think this is unabashedly an excellent film I don't feel that way about Jennifer's Body having, just wa- having watched it but I don't hate it either I actually don't think it's bad like it's, it's so I checked at a 45% of Rotten Tomatoes people talk about this like this is a piece of garbage it is not it is fine I thought it was a fine respectable horror movie I didn't hate it as much as I hate a lot of horror movies so from me that's kind of high praise but let's see what the others think so who'd you bring so to start off because I brought a friend from college to watch Under the Cherry Moon. I brought another friend from college to watch Jennifer's Body. So I brought my friend, Kristen Batko. Kristen, if you want to welcome, and if you want to introduce yourself to the listeners. Well, hi, I'm Kristen. And as Monica said, we met back in college. I'm a genre TV and film writer with some things in development. And kind of my through line is writing about fucked up people. And so I think that <laughs> I think that Jennifer's Body kind of fits that mold. So it's a film that I'm really interested in. And I'm excited to be here and talk about it. Very cool. And then I also brought my friend Jose. Jose and I met through recreational kickball. (laughs) But I would say that, you know, because that was the first time I had ever won a medal in anything ever, it really solidified (laughs) our friendship. (laughs) So Jose, welcome to the show. And if you want to introduce yourself to the listeners. Yeah, I mean, aside from the rec kickball league, which is something I do, I'm also in the entertainment industry. 
am an actor, writer, producer. I'm a member of the Horror Writers Association. So <laughs> I have definitely spent a lot of time thinking about, enjoying, and creating works of horror in terms of a novel that I've written, screenplays that I've written. I have one in development with Village Roadshow. We just filmed a feature-length horror movie in Chicago that we're currently in post-production for. And I've actually taught a course on Buffy the Vampire Slayer when I was Very in grad cool. school. So I definitely have a lot of thoughts and opinions about a number of things horror related but specifically jennifer's body so i'm very excited to be here all right well okay so now i guess i mean i've already given my opinion which was i am lukewarm on this but again, <laughs> again i don't hate it like i think you know if i had to do out of five stars i'm at i'm squarely two and a half you know this is a this is the kind of movie where i'm like if you are big into the horror genre i think you should love this if you don't like the horror genre i think you should be like this is fine which is where i'm at if you hate it then you're gonna hate it but i know the history of it and i know it doesn't really fall down like that i know the controversy which we'll talk about so i'm curious for you guys Kristen, did you like it how did you feel about it i do like it. I came to it not when it came out. And as we said, we'll discuss the controversy because I feel like as a high school teenage girl, I got caught up in kind of marketing the talk about it, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I never felt like it was for me. And I discovered it a couple years ago after it kind of sort of had this feminist reading put on it. And Resurgence, I really, yeah. yes. So I really enjoyed it. Do I have critique? Do I think certain things about it are aggressively 2009 in a way that kind of shocked me? <laughs> yeah, like I, I I was like, oh, I forget sometimes the things that we used to say on, you know, movies and TV in such casual ways. Okay. But and so so certain things about it were dated for me. That being said, I mean, it absolutely did not deserve the complete pan it got when it was released. Okay. And Jose? Yeah, I first saw Jennifer's Body in theaters when it came out in 2009. I own the movie <laughs> on DVD. I am a particular fan of it. If I had to rate it out of 10, since that is a metric that was used, I would probably say I would put it at like like an 8.5 to 9. Do I think it's perfect? Okay. No. Do I really enjoy it? Yes. Do I think it is good slash got a really bad rap in terms of how it was handled when it was released? Yes. But also I agree that it is very dated in a lot of ways. So I can totally see where that's coming from, especially for people that have kind of found it later. But yeah, that, oh, yeah. that's kind of where yeah. I stand on it. I think it's got a lot to say both about where we were at that time when it was made and also after the fact is kind of an argument artifact what it says about the time it was made kind of just in terms of its existence as well so but ultimately especially as a horror fan and a person who loves this sort of genre i like it and would definitely argue that i think it is a good movie and monica you're 10 out of 10 no notes is that right here <laughs> <laughs> i i wouldn't give it a full 10 out of 10 for but for me like this is almost a near perfect movie this is also coming i need to also own and say when i said that we should watch jennifer's body as our hey, this is actually a good movie topic. I hadn't yet seen Jennifer's Body. Oh, and really? So, yeah, I watched oh, it. Oh. I am brand new to this movie. I saw it for the first time last night. Oh, wow. Okay. And I still think, like, and, and somehow this is the thing that I would have up with. One, because, like, I may not love horror movies, but I love late shots, and I love teen movies, and it is mm -hmm. both of those things. Yes. <laughs> better. There are things about about this film that I felt like I had never seen on camera before that I felt like were incredibly smart. I and mean, it like really, I felt like had a lot to say, really held up, really stood the test of time. Am I still really confused why the bar bursts into flames out of nowhere? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if we let that go, I think the rest of it is a perfect movie. And I also think the 2009 of it is what also keeps it being a perfect movie because I think it's important to have time capsules that do not always stand the test of time in order to then have conversations about how we have progressed as a society. Because I think that one of the main critiques that comes across in Jennifer's Body is the fact that it's two women pitted against each other in ways that may not always feel feminist, especially when this is very much a story about leaving women and gaslighting and space that women were in 2009 in regard to conversations of assault and the places that we are still stuck in now yeah. and seeing the ways that we have been able to fix the problems in those spaces between Jennifer's body and now 
now and the things that are still problems today, I think is like, it's a really important conversation to be continuing to have because it's this great moment of being able to see how society has and has not evolved within a 10 year time frame. Mm -hmm. That for me is why this is a perfect movie because it exists as social commentary that can remain relevant both times. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That's fair. And actually that argument there, I mean, persuaded me in terms of, oh, does it feel dated or not? Like it's a good time capsule that way. I think for me, it was just a little surprising still even to hear it. Cause I think sometimes when I look back on media I consumed in the 2000s, I don't always remember all that stuff because it just like blew by. I mean, there was, my roommate was watching The Vampire Diaries and I was just <laughs> so surprised by some of like the slang or just, I mean, other things. There's a lot of like jokes that we definitely don't tend to see in mm -hmm. TV and movies today that I just had no memory of. Like I had seen those things at the time, but it was so normal that I had no memory of it. So sometimes just seeing something from that time can be a bit of a surprise. Because totally. we're I mean, also yeah. talking 2009, we're also talking films that came out are like The Proposal starring yeah. like yeah, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> starring Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock in which the entire like butt of the joke of the movie is like it's not workplace sexual harassment when it's a lady doing it or it's <laughs> like it's not racist when it's Betty White singing to the window to the wall as Native American chants. It's just funny mm. and adorable because it's Betty White. <laughs> and we come back on those things later and we are able to be like oh no that was definitely problem. See, I always, and that's where I'm at. I am not, I'm not often convinced by that argument. And here's one of the problems. I think we, we look at things that are dated and 2009, we're talking 13 years ago, right? Almost four. And we're looking at it like, oh, whoa, I can't believe we were saying this. Like, weren't we better people back then? We're not better people now. We like to pretend we are and we like to complain, you know, like, I, I mean, the thing that people on the right make fun of us for, oh, you're just being too woke. Well, sometimes we kind of are. And I don't mean like we shouldn't be. I mean, like, sometimes that's the entire commentary, right? So like, I'm thinking of one of one of my favorite 90s TV shows, like everybody else in the world, was Friends. Friends is, by 2022 standards, super homophobic. It is incredibly transphobic. That said, in 1995 terms, or 97, or whenever, you know, like the mid-90s terms, Friends was super transgender positive. For people who have not seen it, on the show, one of the main characters, Chandler's father, is a trans woman. And there's a lot of off-color jokes about, I think he uses he pronouns, even though he has transitioned. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've watched it. But there are a lot of off-color jokes about Chandler's father, who's now a woman, who's played by a Kathleen Turner, if I remember correctly. And a lot of criticism, you can find no shortage of YouTube videos talking about this. And it's like, oh, you know, you couldn't do this today. You couldn't say this today. You couldn't. I'm like, well, you couldn't only because we want society to progress. So it wouldn't have been funny in the same way. But it's not like we don't make fun of transgender people today. Let's not pretend we, I mean, maybe we shouldn't, but we do. And in some ways, things that we say that might be intended to be positive, I don't know where we're going to be in 20 years. Maybe they will seem dated. I mean, I kind of hope they will, right? I kind of hope that the things that we intend to be super progressive today seem very regressive in 20 years because that means we're progressing. So like if I look at Jennifer's body, like I don't, I mean, I'm kind of curious what Kristen, which jokes Kristen was talking about, because there's a lot of, for me, most of the things that seem dated were cultural references that the Jennifer character herself makes because of the way she talks, but they're crude. I found them kind of sophomoric and stupid because she's supposed to be, she's supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, a high school <laughs> sophomore, right? Like, like she's supposed to, like she's supposed to talk like that. Like, yes, they're sophomoric because she's literally a sophomore. But also I found them, uh, you know, slightly dated, but also a lot of it's just the, that's the Diablo Cody-ness of it, right? Like that's the, that's Diablo Cody's whole thing. If you look, if you watch Juno, it's the same way. And some of it's crude and some of it's mean-spirited because that character is crude and mean-spirited. But I, I mean, to me, I don't think some it's, of the stuff yeah. that feels dated is like the homo jokes like they're right. blatant like jokes where they're like oh homo you know that's the stuff that as a gay yeah. man i look at it now and i'm like oh that is dated i think to like monica's point the interesting thing for me that makes it feel still relevant is some of the subtextual stuff that has less to do with the diablo cody like isms of the dialogue and more about like the metaphors and the themes that it's exploring because okay. i really agree i think like there's a richness to the way it does have this sort of woman versus woman femme versus femme overview that you see but if you really break it down it has more to it's deeper than that because that that sort of conflict comes from one of the women being hurt by toxic masculinity right so it's the idea of the fact that this woman is turned into this monster by toxic masculinity mm -hmm. and that is what pits her against
against the other women whose back she should have, right? Whose, like, team she should be on. And I mm-hmm. think that is a really, like, resonant theme that I still see. Because you do still see, like, femmes voting against other femmes' best interests. You, like, sure. you see that every day. And mm-hmm. I think, like, the sort of, like, culpability, you know, the ways in which Jennifer Check, who is this conventionally beautiful character, played by Megan Fox, benefits from that conventional beauty, benefits from the proximity to power through the male attention that she gets and the way that she uses it to further herself, the way that she uses it to put her best friend, Needy, Amanda Seyfried's character, down in different ways and the way eventually that leads to her, like, it's all kind of wrapped up in a way that is a little bit deeper to me than friends having a trans character that they also make the butt of the jokes, which I think is really Mm -hmm. exciting. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think the conversation about something like Jennifer's body, especially because you've got Karen Kusama, the director, and Diablo Cody as the writer, these two really powerhouse women behind the camera making this movie, like, it it Mm -hmm. makes it all a little bit more juicy to me and a little bit more, I think it will stand the time in terms of both camp factor, accruing audiences, and the sort of conversations that just, like, from a critical standpoint, people are going to have moving forward. When you say juicy, you mean juicy good, not juicy bad, right? Like, you're saying saying juicy juicy, good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Juicy, like, juicy, like, there's stuff to dig into. Juicy, like, there's interesting things that you can unpack the more you watch it. Juicy, like, it's also funny and it's also entertaining and it also delivers on the horror stand front. I mean, like, I, as a horror fan, is it the best horror movie out there? No. It doesn't really necessarily deliver all the things I want as a horror genre person. But it's but not trying to be it either. Checks a lot of, exactly. It checks a lot of the boxes for me. So on top of the fact that it does that and also is, you know, female filmmakers, female screenwriters, you know, female creatives behind the camera making these choices. For me, it like, it gives me what I want and it gives me, it, at the time, it gave me something that I didn't know that I wanted, which was really exciting. Yeah. So I, I wonder just as, so actually, I, I guess, Jose, I guess you're the only other one. I saw it when it came out and Jose, you saw it when it came out. Okay. Because I'm wondering in retrospect, like, <laughs> I feel like it was homophobic in 2009, but not because the movie is, but because Jennifer is. Jennifer, so most of the negative comments, the, you know, the off-color comments, particularly homophobia and frankly, kind of misogyny, some of the most misogynistic stuff in the film is said by Jennifer because she sucks. She's a horrible person even before she turns into a monster. Like not in a bad way. I mean, she's a teenage girl, right? Like I'm like she's realistic, but she (laughs) makes a lot of she makes a lot of these comments that are like, oh, you know, you're being a little gay. And she she says all these negative things to needy to Amanda Seyfried's character because Jennifer is a bad person to the point to that when Jennifer actually does get turned into a demon and needy tries to explain it to her boyfriend. She's like, well, Jennifer's evil. And he's like, yeah, I know. Everyone knows. How have how are you just figuring out that your best friend is a you know horrible person? <laughs> and, and which is clever. But like, I think See, it's, it's yeah, trying to I say hey, she doesn't deserve it. But she's like, yeah, but she's still a, a kind of a she's kind of a manipulative person. That's like and this is something that is very unique. And like, I definitely think that Kristen and Monica might have some insight on this, too. But I know mm-hmm. that the perspective on Jennifer is very different for me personally. And you can see this across the board from queer fandom when it comes to quote unquote bad female characters. You know, it's a lot Mm -hmm. of like we support Wanda no matter what she does because she's a powerful (laughs) woman. Like, yeah, you know, kill America. We don't care. Get your bag, right? (laughs) Like it's the sort of vibe where it's like we understand that we understand that the standard by which goodness is Mm -hmm. regarded doesn't always apply to us because like just being gay is enough for people to say I'm going to hell, right? So good by whose standard, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, is Jennifer not necessarily the nicest person? Sure. Would I necessarily say that I think Jennifer Check is a bad person prior to her murdering men? Not necessarily. Would I mm-hmm. say she's a mean girl character? Yes. Yeah. In the same way that I would describe Regina George from Mean Girls, and I think like there's a lot of sort of parallels between a character like that, but that's also mm-hmm. not something that I would necessarily say I think Regina George is an evil person in a cut and dry way. And I think that's the cool thing about when, what Jennifer's body does is because no matter what, if you watch this movie, you will see that our central protagonist, Amanda Seyfried, who is like, as a central protagonist, is upholding these 
like standards of good holds an unsurmountable amount of love for the antagonist Jennifer right like she loves her that is her best friend that is her ride or die that is the girl that she has had these pleasant memories and you see these flashbacks to the biggest challenge for Amanda's character is to overcome the love that she has to set her free from the prison that she's trapped in right to set her body mm -hmm. free from the demonic possession that she ultimately undergoes and I think the complexity of that relationship between the good girl and the bad girl in quotation marks right is something mm -hmm. that is deeper than a lot of traditional narratives will address and is what makes the movie so interesting because I don't think Jennifer's a bad person and you know you will you, if you see this movie with a crowd of gay men and women they will be like yeah when she's eating dudes they're gonna be like woo yeah eat that dude right like like that's why the moral complexity of it is really interesting especially because you have this woman Jennifer regardless of her meanness regardless of the way that she treats other people and it, I'm not excusing it or saying it's okay but she mm -hmm. exists and and finds power and maneuvers through a world that is constantly objectifying her right the power mm -hmm. and the the agency that she finds comes directly from the objectification and that male toxicity that she has to deal with every day and needy de deals with it as well so we see them deal with it in two very different ways so the question is like well why is it that we don't think it's okay that Jennifer is finding pleasure in it that we don't think it's okay that Jennifer is also finding power and like yeah pushing people around and pushing people down she's doing that because that's what the male system that she exists in tells her she should be doing right like so I, I think that there is a little bit more complexity there I want to jump <laughs> yeah. in because I I feel like because he's kind of hitting on a point where I thought about like why is Jennifer popular and her, yet her only friend is needy right is because the relationship that we see is these two girls and mm -hmm. it got me thinking about the fact that like when you watch a movie like Mean Girls when you watch a movie with someone like Regina George is popular because she has like a group of friends that she tells what to do and you would think that someone like Jennifer would also have that because she's a cheerleader and you realize that it's actually this space in which her objectification as like the hot girl is the thing that sort of makes it so that she is already sort of isolated from everyone else and does not have friends outside of needy for the rest of the movie even gets right there's a sense in which she in which jennifer is sort of constantly objectified and policed even to the point that like when Kristen was mentioning the fact that this movie was particularly panned i would argue mm -hmm. that a lot of the same politics that are being explored within the film the exact same reason that the film does not succeed on a box office level in 100%. 2009 and i think that is really important to understand that it is like it is commenting on itself that is how like that is how self-aware this movie is of like the zeitgeist that it is in there's a there's mm -hmm. almost a sense in which like this movie was sort of never meant to do well because that is sort of the thing that is being commented on and when we look at somebody like Jennifer who and her relationship with Needy and their relationship to their bisexuality and sort of the experimentation that they go through it is one a case in which we are seeing love we are seeing homophobia we are seeing objectification of these two women in the way that they interact with each other and all of those things are happening simultaneously right and that's really important when we consider the context of this film that these women are never sort of allowed to just be women there's always some other societal thing that's being put on them or ascribed to them in terms of their behavioral codes and so yeah. this is a movie that for me just has so many layers in terms of is Jennifer a bad person not really no is she kind of dumb yeah but like that's kind of like the only bad thing that I could actually well, say about mean. her like, she's mean but like she's just like I don't why, think she's why is she mean she's mean, mean because everyone else has been objectifying yes. her and not treating her like a person for 16 years of her life and that's not a long time of life experience to have seen anything if the only person who has ever been nice to you ever is your best friend right and so there is a sense in which like and why does she sort of originally when we look at the pattern of like the men that she eats first one is because she's incredibly desperate and doesn't want to die and so she picks this guy who she knows that no one will miss mm -hmm. the second one is one that she goes after because he's an asshole and the mm -hmm. third one is one that she goes after because she's told that he's nice right like mm -hmm. and there's something important about like there being that selection of these men that she goes after so she right. goes after the nice guy and the reason that she picks the nice guy is because needy tells her to like there's yes. a sense in which all of this is 
based on just her interaction with her female friend and her female friendship. And Kristen, I would love to hear your thoughts about sort of the female relationships that we're seeing portrayed and explored within this movie. Oh, actually, something I think you're touching on that's really interesting is that Jennifer goes after, I think the first one is yes, out of desperation, like you said. But after that, they're people who are in proximity to needy as opposed to the people that actually did this to her in the first place, which I think mm-hmm. is something really interesting. She goes after the goth emo kid because Needy shows an interest in him. She goes after Needy's boyfriend, but she doesn't actually go after the band that sacrificed her in the first place. And so it seems like sometimes this movie is described as like this rape revenge story, but instead it actually, she actually goes after people who are close to a friend. And is it because she's jealous of Needy? Is she jealous of the boys that get to be with her? Is she trying to protect Needy from these boys? We don't really necessarily get a clear sense of the motivation, but it does seem like the people she picks for the most part are for their proximity to Needy, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the people who were bad to her specifically. I absolutely read this as a love story between these two girls because she goes after all of the people in proximity to Needy. And then the fact that when Needy has to kill her friend, the fact that she then enacts the revenge caused Mm -hmm. her to Mm -hmm. lose her best friend is the thing that's important. I think like you, you hit the nail on the head. Like the fact that like the end credits, I think is one of the most important part of the movie. The way that the, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but the way that the movie finishes, right? Amanda, are we allowed to do spoilers? Is yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, the movie's, so the movie's that, 13 years old. Right. <laughs> so the way that the movie like spoilers for this entire episode, <laughs> right? Like you're able to finally have the showdown between Needy and Jennifer and Needy like kills the demon that killed her boyfriend and has been murdering dudes in her hometown. And then over the course of the very end, there's this framing device where you see Needy in this sort of mental institution and it's like this is how I got here this is a crazy story right (laughs) and then you find out that she like inherits the power she inherits this demon power from her friend and then she escapes from the institution and over the course of the end credits you just see these like stills of her tracking down the band that caused this possession they did a human sacrifice on Jennifer who they assumed was a virgin and it went wrong and that's what led to the whole premise of the movie and she goes down and she murders the band and it's like it's mm-hmm. if you walk out of that movie when the end credits start you miss you miss out on the, the whole like last sort of arc of this story and i think it's really powerful because like what you're ultimately talking about is here you have this girl who is able to find power literally receiving power from the trauma of her friend right and i think it's one of those things where especially if you're talking about communities that are women or femme communities or even just like non-straight communities you learn from the hurts of your peers like you share you like share this pain and you gain this knowledge and that knowledge is power and that agency that kind of like helps you do better avoid hurts in the future survive is really empowering like ultimately like the end the whole like end of the movie is about empowerment needy gets this power so it's not even just about like this this victimization which really is that sort of arc that you see you see jennifer being sacrificed she's treated as a human sacrifice because this band assumes that she is a virgin and by doing this they will get all the fame and success by making this deal with the devil and since jennifer has female agency has had sex for her own pleasure as far as we know right that goes wrong and that's what leads to her being a monster right and that's the sort of thing that you see over and over again if you're talking about like that sort of thing where it's like women who have sex become whores right Mm -hmm. male society doesn't like women having sex for themselves so they become monsters and i think to kristen's point like the fact that we see Jennifer use the power that she finds from this monstrification, so to speak, to go after the people that are closest to Needy is because there becomes this wall. There becomes this wall of straight men between Needy and her friend, right? Between Needy and Jennifer. It's the emo guy. It's her boyfriend that just get in the way of that relationship, which before sex made sense. Once sex with guys became a thing, there's this barrier. And so Jennifer goes and she one by one starts to like get those bricks out of the wall, like to tear down that barrier between the two, which I think is very true for a lot of people's experience. You know, like how many of us have gone through the experience growing up and getting older and then your best friend has a boyfriend and all of a sudden you never hear from them anymore, right? Your best mm-hmm. friend has a boyfriend and all of a sudden like they're a different person. Your best friend start, becomes popular and all of a sudden like you can't relate anymore. Like that's a tale that's old as time and we see it a lot in these teen movies, which this is just, mm-hmm. one of the reasons why this succeeds is because it is a stellar example of a teen movie. It tackles that 
teenage experience so well. But from a female experience that, I mean, like, we see it in a couple of other movies, like Ginger Snaps is another one of my favorites. It's this female Canadian werewolf movie about these two sisters, and we see something very similar. Like, one of the sisters becomes, gets bitten by a werewolf, so she becomes a monster right as she gets her period, right as, right as she starts to become popular and has sex with guys, and she leaves her sister behind, and, you know, conflict. Like, there's a reason why we see that sort of specific conflict occur, and it's because it's something that's very familiar and relatable, and we can understand what that means as we're watching it happen. But ultimately, the fact that at the end of Jennifer's body, Needy not only is able to free her friend from this entrapment that she finds her in, this entrapment of this, like, trauma and monstrification, but she's able to take power in herself and, you know, move forward with that, I think is really cool. So I also want to bring up what I feel like is a pretty unique lens. When we talk about, like, there's always parts of narrative that everyone can universally relate to, and then there's also negotiated readings, which sort of exist for people of different communities to find that maybe isn't as apparent to the mainstream audience when they watch a product like a film. And for me, there is a very specific reading of Jennifer's body as like a queer femme woman. I feel mm -hmm. like isn't picked up on by everyone. But th this idea that like straight men always want to insert themselves into queer femme relationships like as a bisexual woman who has dated other like feminine looking women like there is always some guy who pops up out of nowhere who's like hey and you're like I didn't want to talk to you I didn't ask for this like there is sort of an immediate like assumption that like like we're just missing like a penis in the three-way like I I don't know like it's our own horror you... movies is what I'm mm -hmm. here to say which character so, are you saying does that for this and I'm saying I mean, that like all of the straight men sort okay. of exist in the middle of this relationship between Needy and Jennifer, who are both femme women, it's really important that the space in which she tells her about what happened, like, sort of exists as originally, like, a scene in which they are making out, and the dialogue reveals that's something that they have done multiple times before, and have sort of played boyfriend and girlfriend before. And the fact that Jennifer's mother, who we've never seen throughout the rest of the film, bursts into the bedroom and sees he's needy on top of Jennifer on the bed. It was also to me like a very much like a forced outing of the closet type of scenario. And then to see that the place that she is sent is an institution and the very large history of queer people being institutionalized. For me, this mm -hmm. is a movie that is very much speaking to bisexual femme women in particular, which is not a group mm -hmm. that I often see represented on screen. And so for me, those pieces are a really important reading of the text. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. The fact that, like, her ultimate, Jennifer's ultimate freeing from this, you know, demonic possession comes in bed. A scene that occurs in bed between two women. That is the ultimate. That's when she breaks, that's when Jennifer's body is freed from the devil, occurs in bed with a woman. I think that is mm -hmm. indeed significant, right? And the fact that, like, she was put in this position of persecution from this demon, from men literally taking advantage of her i 100 agree with your reading and the fact that like the mom walks in and sees that like it's all there but i will say that on top of all of this like metaphor and theory and thematic things that we're kind of pulling out it's also a pretty straightforward very funny darkly humorous very entertaining chill high school comedy horror movie right like the fact that like it is able to withstand all of this analysis while also being just like a fun movie is to me what makes it a good movie you know because like Oftentimes it's either one or the other. Either it's this very heavy, boring, schlocky, like, oh, by message movie or queer theory film, you know, about queer trauma and whatever. And that's boring <laughs> to me. Like, I don't, I've oh, never no, seen Brokeback Mountain. I don't want to watch Brokeback Mountain because oh, that's not interesting. <laughs> I don't I mean, care so, about Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> you know I mean, what just, I mean? Okay. Just for me, can you tell me what bisexual heavy theory films there are out there? Because I'm ready for that movie, actually. You know what? Honestly, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a list. Yeah. <laughs> There could be more bisexual theory movies, but like, you I know, anything, give you a any, list especially... of bisexual teen comedies, by the way. I have a question though. Well, yeah. Oh yeah. No. So here's, and this is weird. I go back and you, you've done episodes on coming of age films. And so the listeners know my unabashed love of the coming of age genre. And that those are the things that I like about stuff. So all the stuff that Monica was just saying, I, I buy. I wonder if, and this is going to go, Kristen, you hinted at this a, a, a little bit at the beginning. We're, we'll talk a little bit about 
like some of the mismarketing towards it. But I wonder if kind of part of the problem, which I was just checking, the Rotten Tomatoes scores are still mixed today. So even after the resurgence where people are revisiting it, they, you know, there's a lot of reviews in 2009 and then there's a break till 2019 and people were like, oh, wait, we get, you know, there's something different. But even still, there's mixture because I wonder if part of it is just the idea that this has to be a horror movie sort of gets mm -hmm. in the way of the, you know, of the bisexual friendship movie that Monica was describing because it was, it was something that struck me when Jose was talking. At the end of the, you say, you know, you think it's significant that like the freeing of Jennifer's body happens in a scene in bed. I agree with you. However, the problem is at the end of the freeing of her body, she's dead. Like, And she's dead because it's because it's a horror movie, right? Like it's not, this is not a thing where, this is not a, uh, I don't know, but I'm a cheerleader to name a bisexual movie, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Like where yeah, at the end of the movie, they don't get to be together. She doesn't get to ha go on and, ha and even be her own safe person that like is, you know, she gets to be dead. And that's a, right. and there's no way around that because if she's not, then you don't have a horror movie, right? Like the entire movie is predicated on the fact that she was turned into a demon. So just the genre convention sort of, but now on the other hand, I don't think anybody would be paying attention to this movie at all if it was just another little tiny Diablo Cody indie film, right? Like it, it, part of that, it's, so it's a mixed bag, right? Like I, like I wonder the thing that, I mean, Kristen, we can, you can talk about it. When this movie came out originally, it was heavily, this was during the point when Megan Fox was the girl in Hollywood. Everybody really wanted Megan Fox to happen. Transformers had happened and we were like, we're going to put her in a movie. She's going to be the lead and she's going to be hot. And that was the marketing for the movie. The movie was sold as come see a horror movie where you get to see Megan Fox's boobs. Neither of those things are true. It's barely a horror movie. I mean, it is, but not the way that it was marketed. It's not a slasher film, which the marketing made it look like. And she doesn't actually get naked. This is, if you are going just for that, because that was the, you know, the teen boy audience, the straight teen boys who were horny for Megan Fox was the audience this was marketed to. And they would watch this and they would be sorely disappointed because it's not that movie. And then the, you know, the teen girl bisexual trying to figure yourself out audience that might have benefited from it never saw the film because it was marketed towards as, hey, go see Megan Fox's boobs. And that was like sort of a flaw in it. And I don't know. I don't know if we would be paying attention to it today if it hadn't been mishandled, right? Like it would have gone if it weren't notable for being this movie that was horribly mismarketed. Would anybody have given it a second look 10 years later or would it have just been this forgotten little tiny indie film about, you know, two girls trying to like decide whether they like boys or girls? Yeah, it's tough because I mean, I think in some so many ways that the mismarketing of this movie so detrimentally impacted the director's mm -hmm. career. It affected oh, God, yeah. Fox's career in the sense that like, I think it's hard for me to go, well, would this be, would have been just like a indie queer movie that people kind of forgot about. And I'm just like looking at how bad the marketing like fucked over the movie in terms of box office when it made mm -hmm. like it put, I think Karen Kusama in an interview describes as like being in director jail after this movie. And Yo, Megan yeah. Fox kind of, you know, I mean, she had blowback for other reasons at that time. But I, I don't know. It's like without the controversy, would the movie have succeeded? I think probably not in some ways, because would it have even gotten made, gotten made or promoted the way it had if it wasn't supposed to be this like major star power thing? I just I appreciate the right. irony that mm -hmm. now the reason we all love Megan Fox in like 2022 is that she ends up in headlines, which are she and Machine Gun Kelly have drank each other's blood in a <laughs> ceremony. And it's like, like the real irony of all of this is like, maybe Megan Fox wasn't acting, guys. Like maybe. <laughs> no, she you was. Know, like so, maybe, okay, so. maybe she was given like too much criticism. And then poor girl got shoved back into being like objectified and yelled at by Michael Bay for another two movies, which she absolutely did not deserve. When mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is like, she was probably living her best life getting to pretend to like drink men's blood. So, Cause that's what she's well, doing now. Yeah. yeah, she says that it's her favorite movie of her film. Yeah. Yeah. She's gone on record saying that Jennifer's body is her favorite performance. She even and talked about how for her, it was that she was just in this very vulnerable space and she wasn't even doing this method acting thing. It was just that she was vulnerable and raw. And so mm -hmm. that's what came across in the movie. She also talks about how, like to speak to your point about her getting to act like this in the movie and, and what was going on in Hollywood and real life at the time is she kind of interprets and where the place she went for the sacrifice scene, which I think was written more as like a stand in for, you know, rape, sexual assault, etc. <laughs> she said that she's viewed it as how Hollywood was treating her. That stabbing, <laughs> that laughing, that mocking, all that horror for her, the place she was going to act for it was literally how she was being treated at the time by the studios and the public. So I have weird thoughts on this. I don't love Megan Fox for drinking 
Machine Gun Kelly's Blood. I actually think she's a good actress. I, I don't know her as a person. You know, I've seen interviews with her where she does seem kind of dumb, but I've also seen interviews with her where she seems kind of smart. But I think that this performance is actually good. And I'll get to why in a second. But what makes me realize back then that she's a good actress is not long after this, like three years after Jennifer's Body came out, she has a small part in This Is 40, where she plays the young hot girl in the same store that Leslie Mann works with. And Leslie Mann's 40 and, you know, Megan Fox is supposed to be like 25. And they kind of build a friendship and part of, I mean, it's not a big role for Megan Fox, but the point of the of it is, you know, hey, you look at this girl this way because she's 25 and maybe you're being a little you know, hard on her just because you're 40 and it's about your insecurities. And, you know, you actually have things in common and it's a good role. And Megan plays it with a lot of nuance. And then she went on to years and years later, she is for one season, she's on the TV show, The New Girl, Girl, replacing replacing Zoe Deschanel while she was pregnant. She moves, she temporarily moves into their apartment while, I guess the Zoe Deschanel's character, Jess, is supposed to be on jury duty. So, you know, there's a girl using her room and Megan Fox is excellent in that role. She, it's like, she, she gets like 15, 16 episodes and she's just really good. She has a chance to act in a way that is different than the bimbo role that she'd been pigeonholed into for her entire career. And I think what makes this movie work for me is the character Jennifer plays with that. And where I think some of her best acting is, yes, I see what you're saying. And I'm sure she saw that as, you know, the murder scene. I understand the point she's making, but the best scenes for me are the scenes where Jennifer, after being coming a demon, there's a couple times where all of her most recent beating has worn off. So her makeup is downplayed and she plays it very lethargic and tired and she's much more subdued as a, she's still the same character, but she is subdued Jennifer because she is just in demon pain. So you've got that versus the hungry Megan, I'm sorry, the hungry Jennifer versus the Jennifer that just fed and gets to have that conversation with Needy. And you see so much nuance between the different states that she has because of her demon possession in this film that I go, that's amazing acting. That is someone who made a very conscious choice in her acting for this film to where you can tell what she's emotionally feeling in a way that's not just the Diablo Cody dialogue. It is the performance. So I actually think she's actually really good. It's just that you know, no one wants her for anything other than, you know, frankly, shitty bimbo parts, you know, for Transformers. Yeah, I mean, I think she's great in this production. And I think like part of what unlocks some of that potential that you're seeing has to do with, you know, Karen Kusama being able to see the potential there and look beyond just Michael Bay's perspective of her, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. the horror genre in general is also a really good example of something that gets underappreciated in terms of opportunities for actors to do some powerhouse performances and I generally speaking female actors like I think of Tony Collette and Hereditary like people have Mm -hmm. that monologue on a t-shirt you know Mia Goth in Pearl which just came out this year she also did dual duty in X which everybody should see but if Mia Goth doesn't get an Academy Award nomination for her performance in Pearl it will be a crime like I come from theater like I have a lot of experience as an actor in theater on stage like Shakespeare and all the rest Mia Goth has like a five minute single take monologue that just blows me away in that movie. And it's like that. It's like Jennifer, it's Megan Fox and Jennifer's body, like consistently disregarded because it's genre. And I think that's one of the biggest crimes. And I think that's why in terms of kind of what Kristen and Monica were saying with regards to to the way that like Megan Fox's experience and her character's arc in this movie very eerily parallel the way Hollywood was treating her and the way the marketing, like the marketing team tried to present this movie it's like very eerie like they were literally Mm -hmm. trying to benefit off of Megan's body like they Mm -hmm. were literally trying to use that to sell this movie and so when the audiences came to see the movie when they saw something that was more than that was deeper than that that didn't really do just deliver that in the way that they expected it was a subversion of those expectations in a way that like the people that the marketing you know system brought in couldn't appreciate and I think that's such a shame do I think that the movie would have been as like as successful successful as it was considering it wasn't successful no do i think people would still be talking about it now if the marketing was different and it was just like a diablo cody indie yes because people are still talking about but i'm a cheerleader people are Mm -hmm. still talking about welcome to the dollhouse people are still talking about a lot of those sort of indie movies so i think that like if the marketing was truer to the project it would have found its audience it would still be getting talked about now it just probably would have not been considered a failure in the same way it would have been it would have been 
considered an indie that did whatever it did. Do you know what I mean? It would have been a five. Yeah, it would have been a. It would have been a one million dollar budget, five million dollar picture, and people would have been like, "Yeah, fine." And it, yeah, I mean, I think it would have had its niche. I don't. It's. It, I mean, there's always a question, right? Like, what's the job of the movie? Is the job of the movie make money, or is the job of the movie to make this you know artistic stake in the sand to where this is where queer filmmaking was in 2009? And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, like, I know there's one that I find more interesting. You know, you made the Brokeback Mountain joke, which, (laughs) but I mean, but the Brokeback Mountain joke is for all that it was, Brokeback Mountain is an attempt to take where indie cinema was at that moment and turn it into a Hollywood blockbuster. That's what Brokeback Mountain was. But it was also made by straight guys, starring straight guys. You know, I don't care about it. Like, it's to straight people. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, like, I don't, like, I don't care. Like, I haven't seen it. Do I plan on seeing it? No. Will I watch Jennifer's Body again? When do you mean? Like, this year? This month? Because definitely, like, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, I, like, uh, like I said, mm-hmm. I own this movie on DVD. You know, I, it's something that I watch because it satisfies me. It also has a killer soundtrack. Listen to the Jennifer's Body soundtrack on Spotify because I do on the regular <laughs> and it is great. Like, and there, the shitty thing is like, there are, uh, Haley Williams from Paramore has this amazing song that was on the Jennifer's Body soundtrack, but it's not available on Spotify. And I still like, I downloaded it years ago. So I have it somewhere on my computer, but it's the sort of thing that is very of its time, right? And I think like the fact that I think there's a key component to the fact that it was wit- written by women, directed by women, starring, I'm 99% sure Megan Fox identifies as bisexual, you know, like those things matter and they translate and they resonate and it's important because like Brokeback Mountain might mean something to the box office, like it might mean something to the writer, wider o- array of general audiences, but like it doesn't mean anything to the majority of the queer people that I talk to on the regular. Like, you know what I mean? So like when you ask that question, what is the job of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. I think to me, as a filmmaker, as an artist, as an actor, as a writer, as a producer who has been dealing with these questions a lot, to me, the job of the movie is to connect with people. You know, it's like, it's to make people feel seen. It's to tell a story that makes people feel seen. It's to tell a story that touches people, either to entertain them, to make them laugh, to make them scared, to make them cry, whatever. Like that's the point of what we do. And I think Jennifer's body succeeds on that front across the board. Like, I really do. I mean, I can't speak for everybody and all of their various experiences, but like, it definitely made me feel seen. And Mm -hmm. I'm nowhere in that movie. There's no gay Mexican in that movie. Like, (laughs) in that like, teen high school horror film set in Minnesota. Like, I'm not in that movie. But that movie You have to go through the bar scene frame by frame just to look and just see if there's just one. If there's one Mexican in that bar. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the thing, this is the thing about queer experience and the queer reading of cinema and queer reading of horror films in particular is like we feel seen in the weirdness we feel seen when that woman you know pokes michael myers in the eye with a hanger right we feel seen with a girl who looks fierce and fucking tears a dude apart we feel seen when all of those like the femme things that were continually made fun of and put down for being too faggy or whatever you know oh you, you swish your hips weird like what are you a girl well now we're watching girls fucking murder dudes or like save their friends <laughs> or do whatever and that's empowering and that's why we feel seen in that you know and i think that's important right and that doesn't always happen and i think that's why there's a lightning in a bottle to jennifer's body and the important thing also is that it's not just about queer male experience you know you have fine queer women who are responding to this material in the same way or in a similar way mm-hmm. well i mean i think to jose's point about being seen in this movie i mean unlike jose i do see myself as a white queer woman who had you know a friendship that was confusing in high school and we both you know came out as queer later but was that something we really named or discussed in high school and I think that is part of the brilliance of the movie for me is that there has been some critique like oh is this really a queer enough film because no one actually IDs as that but in 2009 <laughs> this was literally my experience well, well I- and you're the right age, about the right? demons like, yeah <laughs> well but I mean also you are how old are you in 2009 right this is a film that is you literally literally your experience as in you are of the age to where it is contemporary for you in a way that it is not for me so i'll counter or i'll use jose's things counter i actually do know queer people who love brokeback mountain and who love the short story well no but the difference but the difference is i'm older than you so Mm -hmm. like like, i'm a gen xer it's not i mean that's i mean it's the movies are around the same time so that movie is 2005 jennifer's body is 2009 but brokeback mountain is not a movie for millennials. It's a movie for Gen Xers. And yeah. Jennifer's body.
body is not a movie for Gen Xers. The fact that I like it <laughs> is incidental, right? Like I, like I, and again, I don't love it. I was like, this is <laughs> good, but, and I get it. And I'm, and that's what we're seeing. You know, like, I'm like, okay, I get what they're going for. I see why it's good. I'm not a big horror guy, but again, I hate a lot of horror movies or I'm indifferent to a lot of horror movies. So the fact that I'm like, this is kind of good. That's, you know, that that's a high bar for me because it's not my genre. Right. I mean, you're very right. Like generationally things hit different. And I think the older yeah. I get, the more I realize that. Right. And it's going to, I mean, <laughs> you guys are 30, right? Like you're in, and so give it 10, 15 years. And then the Zennial stuff's going to be like, what the hell are these kids watching? Right. <laughs> but I mean, that's kind of how it's supposed to be. Right. Like I, I don't, the, the, I think that one of the parts that makes the reclamation of Jennifer's body happen, right? Like the fact that people are giving it fresh eyes in 2019, 2020, 2022, right. Is because the people who were 15 when it came out and didn't get to see it because they were like, I guess this is a boy movie that I don't care about. I'm not going to waste my $9 going to the movie theater to see Megan Fox's boobs, which again are not actually in the film. I like now you're 30. And so you can give this a shot on streaming and like maybe write a review online and you can have that critical conversation in a way that you didn't have the power to do when you were 15 or 16. You know what I mean? Like that's a, it's a different world. Absolutely. What I meant by the time capsule and I think a lot of what Kristen is getting at too of this being our experience of being high school girls who know that something is confusing and not having language or permission to express it is that now we live in a society where we all have come out as queer because we're allowed to like versus the Gen Z experience thank goodness is that so many more of those kids are able to come out in supportive environments much earlier and Mm -hmm. so having movies that speak to this very unique experience of being millennial and on that cusp of being able to be out and yet not you know like we Mm -hmm. we sort of were existing in that societal shift and then the fact that it has the resurgence is because so many of us finally have permission to be ourselves because when you bring up like why didn't I spend my nine dollars to go watch Megan Fox's boobs like because it still felt like there was something inherently wrong with me Mm -hmm. wanting to see Megan Fox's boobs Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean like it wasn't that I didn't want to. I would have loved to give nine dollars. <laughs> but like, I couldn't dare tell somebody that's why I wanted to see Jennifer's body, and I couldn't quite mm-hmm. articulate any of the confusing feelings that would come up with a better excuse that would be more convincing to talk people mm-hmm. into going to see Jennifer's body. Yeah. And so I mean, therefore, I, think... I had to wait until it was okay <laughs> for me to have ownership that I want to see Megan Fox's boobs. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think if Jennifer's body was made in. 2022, it would have to be doing something a little bit more than it did in 2009 to matter. You know, it matters because of when it was made and how it reflects the time it was made. And also in 2022, so I have a niece who is 16 and queer. I'm not outing my niece. She came out when she was like four. And what's great (laughs) about, no, what's great about her is she was able to come out when she was like four. That's a thing that's weird and different and the exact point that Monica was making, right? Like you don't (laughs) have to, like you don't come out when you're four in the 2000s the way that you do 10 years later, you know? So that's, so that's, it's a weird space for, you guys in that you're in a weird transitional phase. So I think that the movie has to be different now because the idea of, oh, can I, can I be bisexual? And they are like they like Needy and Megan, I'm sorry, Needy and Jennifer make it very clear that this is not the first time they've kissed. Needy is a little confused by it because she's like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be mad at you because of this whole demon thing. But, but like <laughs> they clearly have made out before and Chip, her boyfriend is clearly like, I don't think he tries to insert himself into their relationship, but he's clearly jealous of Jennifer in a way that like he he knows there's more to it and then there's there are other high school students who are you know who have rumors about them and stuff so so i think the bisexuality is part of it and i think that they are used about it and i think that we live in a better world to where it's not as taboo in 2022 as it probably was in 2009 so yay so i mean you can't can you make that movie today no and good good <laughs> yeah good, yeah. good. <laughs> like i mean good. like you could make it i just people wouldn't care like because you know right. you look at something like bodies 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 which came out mm-hmm. not too long ago and and it was good and I dug it. But there are like multiple weird relationships in the movie and it's not yeah. subtext. It's just text and it doesn't really matter. And a lot of people are talking about how Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is very like Gen Z. And it feels a little bit like millennials trying to talk Gen Z to me mm-hmm. as a millennial. That's, yeah. But you're, be- the way you're becoming old people. Sorts of- 
you know, it's like, and I can kind of see it's like, okay, I see what you're trying to do there. But like to see the way that like, you know, a contemporary piece that is hypothetically speaking to these younger people handle queerness as like just a matter of fact. It doesn't need to be subtext. It's not necessarily part of the equation of unease. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. horror movies are all about what is, what are the things that scare us? What makes us unnerved? What is uncertain? What is confusing? Because that's scary. And when you're in high school, like as a closeted queer person in high school, the scariest thing that I, the thing that I was afraid of every single day was my sexuality, like was Mm -hmm. being found out or coming to terms with it. I lived in fear every day until the day I came out. You know what I mean? And so that's Mm -hmm. why, that's another reason why horror is huge for the queer community. So the way that Jennifer's body is able to use that confusion and that uncertainty and that unease regarding, you know, the guilt and the weirdness and, you know, what is this we're making out, you know, all of that stuff, the way it kind of comes into what for a heteronormative culture reads as unnatural, right? Which is Mm -hmm. why horror has been able to explore queerness because it seems wrong and evil and all of that. You know, that's why there's been all of these queer themes in horror since horror existed as a genre. It does function differently if it were to be made today. And that's Mm -hmm. not to say that it couldn't be made today. It just might be less significant. I mean, I think about, I think a lot about, and it's funny because when this movie came out, I was literally in undergrad and I was taking a course because my second major is a double major in theater and film, international film and media studies. And my second major was film. So I was taking a course on the horror genre specifically. And I watched this movie. It also came out in 2009. It's called Sorority Row. And I love this movie. I unapologetically love Sorority Row. It's kind of a remake of The House on Sorority Row from the 70s. And I wrote an essay for this horror class on the comparison between the two because Sorority Row is doing something very similar to Jennifer's Body. And it also reads now as very dated and the humor reads as stuff is like we probably wouldn't laugh at today or we would look at with a more critical eye but the way in which it is dealing with and grappling with female relationships is fascinating to look at in comparison especially just in terms of time capsules of 2009 and what it means when you're living in a period of time where Gossip Girl and Laguna Beach and the hills are like the pinnacle of teen life and this sort of age and you have this sort of objectification happening of people like Megan Fox and the impulse is to be well pretty girls are me you know pretty girls are bad pretty girls are what is tearing down what it means to be a feminist right and I feel like the these movies at this time period were really kind of grappling with that complexity in ways that have only kind of become clear as time has passed and now we look back on it and we're like oh bodies 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 which is primarily a female-led cast is dealing with inter-female relationships and what like that means and what queerness means in that context and economics and money and race all of it and how that filters through it means to be feminist to be a woman who's trying to uplift women but then women are dying like what does that mean in a genre piece so i think like in terms of how it reflects the stuff that you're dealing with at that time period i it's fascinating to me i love it Mm -hmm. i think it's really interesting god isn't it nice that women can be more than just pretty we can have more problems than just pretty girl problems like (laughs) (laughs) i mean I, it's it's fascinating to me. like it's it is amazing because it to me as a genre it is the horror genre is one of the first genres to let women be a little bit more than you might think in terms of media I'm meaning specific like in terms of the way me- women are typically portrayed women in horror are allowed to be more than just pretty and perfect they're allowed to be more complex while simultaneously you can't subtract the fact that there is a level of objectification there is like if you break it down to what happens in a horror movie somebody gets turned from a person to a corpse that is literally like objectification you were turning this human into an object right so the fact that horror movies also are very often the first time if you look over the course of the history of cinema where you see women being complex being villains being empowered fighting for their lives overcoming men finding sexual agency whether it's portrayed as a good thing or a bad thing like all of that stuff happens in the horror genre to a widely marketed audience it's not niche. It is like everybody likes a horror movie, you know, Halloween spooky season, put on your favorite horror movie, you know, like there's a time (laughs) of year where you're going to be watching this. And it's the genre that lets women be Tony Collette and Hereditary, where she's freaking out and ugly and yelling at her son and take the fucking face off your face. You know, like that is why it matters. Like that is why the genre to me is something that like whenever I get an opportunity to talk about it, I want to talk about it because like on paper, it can seem very cut and dry. 
why and there's so much more to it and on top of all of that it's fun it's entertaining it's interesting it can be cheap it can be a very b movie it can be poorly made it could have no budget and it could still be saying something interesting and reflecting something interesting just by the nature of the fact that it is engaging with what we as people are afraid of what we as a society are uneasy with or conflicted about or uncertain about and it just puts all of that out there because if not it's just go crazy so we've resolved nothing i was gonna say that doesn't <laughs> sound like we resolved nothing that sounds like <laughs> no that was actually a good punch i just like the, you know it's, it's just you got sometimes you gotta get that tagline in there but i think the point you made there is important i've said repeatedly you know horror is not my thing that said there are horror movies that i love i love the original halloween unabashedly mm-hmm. one of the greatest films of all time different kind of horror movie i love jaws brilliant mm-hmm. movie. moving forward happy death day was uh-huh. brilliant okay <laughs> happy death day happy death day 2 is okay happy death day the first one one of the most innovative fascinating <laughs> things that i've seen in such a long time so i do think that there's i think there's value there i just have you know i have very weird things about movies also i watch a lot of movies right because mm-hmm. when i say i'm not a horror movie guy you have to remember this isn't from the this is coming from you guys have heard the show i'll watch anything if you put a movie in front of me i'm gonna watch it anyway so it's so it's like you know i give me you know tell me you need me to go see something and give me my amc a-list card and sure i'll mm-hmm. go sit in the air conditioner for two hours and I'll watch your film. Why not, right? So I, like when I'm mediocre on this movie, compared to a lot of, I don't think it is as throwaway a schlocky horror film as its reputation was for so long. Mm-hmm. I also don't think it's, for me, I don't think it's the pinnacle, but I think it's greatly helped. You know, we've talked about it. Like, I think it's greatly helped by its bad reputation. Now, sort of half the cast and crew, everybody except for Amanda Seyfried, their careers were ruined by this film. So like, I, I mean, you know, I don't think Chris it's Chris Pratt good. is in this movie. Chris Pratt is in this movie. <laughs> was Chris he? Pratt, yeah, yeah, he's in the Chris bar. Oh my God, he was in the, in the bar. I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, he's wow. the one that he's says, the one they... where they're... Yeah. that's why she's not a virgin is because she fucked Chris Pratt. And he's talking about the band. Yeah. No, he has this line. He's talking about the band. And he's like, oh, yeah, they, they wear eyeliner like a bunch of homos. That's yeah. Chris Pratt. <laughs> yeah, that, that is. is oh, Chris God. Pratt. I didn't even re- like it, it, mm-hmm. he didn't even register for me because this was bef- I, that was chubby Chris Pratt. I forgot that I forgot about chubby Chris Pratt. This is before hot Chris Pratt and before really annoying Chris Pratt. Anyway. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just I think that the movie is worth watching. I think it's worth giving a shot to. And I think <laughs> and I want. Right. Right. I mean, I want people to watch it and give it a chance as an honest, honest opinion like i just think that for me i think a lot of its a lot of its power comes from the analysis of it right you know like we're doing here for this last hour of going no there's more to it than that however that said that's a lot of movies right like i think that's i think that hanukkah we bring this up a lot you and i love sucker punch and sucker punch is a movie Ooh. that that like only works if you're willing to have someone sit there and go no trust me it's good here's why and i think Ooh. that <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i know but see future episode you gotta see but i but i i get why people are like sucker punch right like i get why they're like that and i get why they're like that on this so mixed but i still think give it a shot if you haven't seen jennifer's body give it a shot that's my takeaway from today yeah and i mean in terms of karen kusama and her career she created one of the most iconic like late odds horror movies i mean kind of indian scale in terms of you're talking about she did this movie called the invitation not the invitation that came out this year which also i think you should see but no she did this movie (laughs) called the invitation that came out I want to say maybe like 2014, 2015, which is a chamber horror movie. Yeah, it's so good. It's Mm -hmm. amazing. It's an amazing movie. And I mean, like, I definitely understand why a lot of people don't like horror, but whenever I can talk about it, I'm just, I literally could talk about it for hours. I literally can and do talk about it for hours. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Oh, well, also, and just to cover up, she also she also did Girl Fight, which is great. Her, <laughs> Karen Christopher Cora Devorted, is really, Girl Fight is 2000. It is an excellent film. So hopefully she gets more work. She, I mean, she's still working. She she hasn't had a movie in a few years. And it looks like. Got a lot uh, of TV. She directs a lot of she, television right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, but anyway, that said, thank you guys for, for coming. Kristen, what about you first? What, you know, where can people find out more about you? Is there anything you want to plug? What kind of cool stuff are you up to? Nothing I really want to plug. I just, I'm just happy to. <laughs> be here <laughs> okay well thank you thank you for joining us and jose i guess that's a good question this is a great opportunity to talk about my book because i never do and i show it more i wrote a novel it's called testament novel it came out a couple of years ago but it's a horror novel it's available wherever you might order books from so i always try to especially for halloween and coming out of hispanic latina heritage month give it a read if you like horror novels it's kind of like 1408 or the shining meets get out you know so that's fun i'm on twitter at 
Jose Nateris. I'm on Instagram at jlorca13. I have a film, Departing Seniors, that hopefully will be making some festival debuts at some point in early 2023, but we'll kind of see how that goes. And I guess that's probably it for me, really. Absolutely. And we'll, and we'll link your book in the show notes, of course. Oh, cool. Thanks. And Monica Marvelous. You can find me on Instagram or on Twitter. That's going to be at Monica Marvelous. On Instagram, that is L-O-U-S. And on Twitter, that is L-O-U-X. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places, always at Chris Madden. Follow the show, all those same places, at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about next week. And I have no idea what it is because, as I said, we're kind of maybe filming these out of of order. So we'll see. Yeah. But that said, please check out the blog. Leave us comments on this and any other show. Let us know what you thought. Suggest topics for us. Sometimes we use the blog to help pick our guests. So, you know, if you'd like to be on the show, let us know. Pitch us an idea. If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out, especially if you leave us a five-star rating, not just a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. That gooses the algorithm, makes us more popular, and makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And, you know, that's what you want. Because, you know, it's just think about it. You can leave me a review that's five stars and that's the equivalent of cuddling up to us, you know, to watch a scary movie and, you know, say something nice to me. Maybe you'll get lucky. Who knows? That said, <laughs> I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to th- thank both of our guests for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thanks.